How many of you have ever had the experience of someone talking to you and they start to say something and then they go off somewhere else in a conversation? They get one sentence out and then it just kind of goes off somewhere else and you're thinking, what's that all about? Or maybe you've done it yourself. You start to say something and you say one thing and then another thought pops in your mind. And then you kind of go on about that and then you go, oh yeah, wait, where was I? And you go back to that. Well, the start of Ephesians chapter 3 is something like that. Paul starts off, now I call your attention to this and then we'll set the background a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, and if you go down to verse 14, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks, he says, for this reason, I, it's like he says, for this reason, I, and then he kind of gets stuck up on a little tangent, a little, little rabbit trail. And he come, then he comes back to it for this reason. And so there's this interruption here, but it's an important interruption. It's a set of parentheses. It's this little thing where he sticks it in there as he's talking about something. So we're in a study on the book of Ephesians. And I've described the book of Ephesians as this drama. Um, this picture of God has liberated the world through Jesus Christ. And Jesus now reigns as king over the cosmos. And we're being invited in to live out this drama. That God has called us to live into this new way of living. And he begins in chapter 1 describing what God has done. The way that God has provided blessings to us. And then chapter 1 continues with this prayer. And where we're invited to pray and to be able to have our eyes opened. And so we talked about the idea of an apocalypse. Which is not the end of the world. But an apocalypse is an unveiling, a revealing. Because a lot of times we can't see what's going on. We don't realize what's going on in the world. So we need God to open our eyes to see the truth of what's really happening. And then chapter 2 kind of sets up what God has done in Jesus from two different perspectives. First from kind of an individual perspective where he talks about us being caught in our trespasses and sin where we're stuck. But God sets us free so we're no longer living that way. But we're instead living as his new creatures and doing what God has done as we're new creation doing good deeds. And then there's this other perspective that we looked at last week where God takes down the walls and he sets it up from the perspective of the covenant or a group of people. And he describes Jews and Gentiles, these people that had this barrier, this wall of hostility where one group looked down on another. Something that our world suffers from a lot where divisions are set up. And God says that in Jesus, that barrier, that dividing wall of hostility was brought down. And so we talked about how that if that wall of hostility has come down, then all walls of hostility come down. And in fact, that's a theme that will run through much of the book of Ephesians. And we'll follow that up a little bit here. And so here he's just finished that, this description of all that God has done in Jesus. And then he starts off for this reason. In other words, all this stuff I just said that God has freed us from our being stuck and dead in our trans transgressions and sin and raised us to new life. That he's torn down the barrier of hostility. He says, for this reason, I... Wait a minute, I got something else I want to say. And he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, if we've been reading the letter and we're not familiar with Paul, we think, wait a minute, he's a prisoner? Because this is new information for us. We learn more about it if you go back about 40 or 50 pages in your Bible to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is this story of the early church. It's this narrative. And Paul ends up in prison a couple times. Not for dealing drugs, not for stealing, not for killing people. But he's ended up in jail 
oftentimes because the religious leaders accuse him of dissent, of fomenting rebellion, that somehow he's causing things because sometimes he goes in cities and he starts preaching and people start to follow Jesus. And when they start to follow Jesus, they don't do things the same way. They may not worship the same gods. They may not want to be a part of the trade guilds. And it upsets the economy. And we all know that one of the worst things somebody can do is upset the economy. All of a sudden, people are out of jobs. People aren't happy about it. And so they have him thrown in jail. And sometimes it's because he's violating the principles. And so he's in jail. And potentially this time, because at one time he was in Ephesus. And some of the Jews thought that he had brought a Gentile. In other words, a non-Jew. So again, the world is divided into two groups of people, at least for most of the people, as, as the Jews understood the day, there was Jews and there was Gentiles, and Gentiles simply meant everybody else. And so some people thought he had brought this Gentile too close to the temple. And so they were all upset about it, and it, they were saying, well, he's going to cause riots. And so they go to the Romans and say, this guy's causing troubles. He's a troublemaker. Paul's a troublemaker, so put him in jail so he won't cause all these problems. And so Paul, he says, I'm a prisoner. And then he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. We think, wait a minute. Jesus isn't the jailer. Jesus doesn't know the... Whose jail is he in? Rome's. He's in the Roman jail. But he's saying, I'm not really, I'm not paying attention to Rome. I'm paying attention to Jesus. And he says, for the sake of you Gentiles. In other words, the reason I'm in jail is because I've been out preaching. And I've been out preaching this word that I just said, that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles has been torn down. And people don't like that. Especially the Jews. They didn't like, they liked to be in a position of superiority. They liked to be in a sense of, we are God's chosen and you're not. And so he's saying, because I've been preaching this message, that's why I'm in jail. Now, my guess is that very few people you know would brag about being in jail. I mean, how many people do you know? It's like, like, hey, this is awesome. I just got convicted and I'm in jail. I'm going to be there for the next five years. Can you believe it? But Paul essentially is saying this. I mean, he makes a point of saying, because the people in Ephesus, they may not even know he's in jail. Remember, they're miles away. There is no internet. There is no newspaper. There is no information travels by letters. And the fact that this one little guy, Paul, is in jail doesn't make the news. And so Paul is pointing this out for a reason, which again is kind of strange to kind of brag about, hey, I'm in jail. But he's saying why? He says, I'm in jail for the sake of you Gentiles. And this is significant because he's talking about something important here. And so he goes on, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. This administration that God has given grace, that is the mystery. We're going to come back to the mystery. So I've already written. But he says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together. And there's that phrase again, that they're brought together. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of this power. Although I am the least of all the Lord's people, the grace was given to me. And so we keep hearing this word grace. In other words, God is at work in him. And what he's saying is that God has displayed his power and again, we think, wait a minute, he's in jail. 
that doesn't seem like much of a display of God's power. I mean, when I think about it, if I think, oh, God was going to display his power, like the jail doors would be exploding and Paul would be bursting out, or like the, the soldiers would come to arrest him and Paul would disappear, or an army of angels would stop him. But Paul is saying, this is a display of God's power, me sitting in a Roman jail. Now, how many of you think of that as an incredible display of God's power? I mean, how many of you, if you were arrested for preaching, would be sitting in jail thinking, wow, look at the power that God has. Look at the grace that he has given me. But that's how Paul sees it. Because one of the themes, one of the ideas in the Bible is that God demonstrates power through weakness. That God demonstrates his power in unlikely ways. If we've been around the church a little bit, we hear those stories and we don't often think about it. We think of one, for example, Sunday school song. song, song. Only a boy what? Only a boy named David, right? It's like, oh, this great little song. Kid picks up a sling and he takes some rocks and he knocks down a giant. Well, part of the theme of the story, the importance of the story, isn't that David was really good with the sling. What's the story about? That God uses an unlikely, not a great warrior, but a little boy to take down a giant. Or the biggest story of all in the Bible, the story of Jesus that Paul talks about again and again. That how does Jesus achieve his victory? By dying. By dying a shameful painful, horrible death on a cross, again, at the hands of the Romans. And what looks like defeat is in fact victory. And that's what Paul is getting at here is that powers, the powers, and this is a different language, the powers, and this is a theme in Ephesians that there is something else out there, that there are spiritual powers at work, that the powers appear to be winning. I mean, if you were keeping a scorecard watching Paul's life and thinking, oh, well, who's winning now? Is it the powers? And again, the powers are these spiritual forces that are at work against the plans of God. And so imagine you are watching on television and you're watching the scoreboard and you're trying to see who's winning. Is God winning or are the powers winning? And here's Paul, the apostle, the one who's set out to preach the Gentiles and Paul gets thrown in a Roman jail. You think, well, points for the powers, right? They're winning. They got Paul in jail. But what Paul is making the point is he's saying, even prison, even being in prison can't stop God from calling the church into existence. Back to verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, the grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was now... In other words, being thrown in jail can't stop what God wants to do. That what looks like defeat is actually victory. That the manner of the church's calling is contrary to the power of the ways of the world. We're going to come back to that. So we think about that. The nature of the church is contrary to the powers. And again, these powers are these spiritual forces at work. And the second part of it is, his intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms. 
What's the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God is bringing these two groups that are totally opposite and bringing them together. So I keep talking about the powers and the powers play the central role in the book of Ephesians. The powers, the principalities and powers. And it's this picture of that there is more to the world than we see physically. That there are spiritual forces at work and the powers of the language that Paul uses to describe these things that happen that we can't always explain. The powers often use deceit or untruth to allow people to do these things. And it's, I've used the example of the Nazis as this way of saying, what caused an entire nation to commit to the genocide of the Jews and the gypsies and so many other people? Was it that they were so much better or was there something else at work? And one of the ways that the powers work in the world, the way they battle against the ways of God is to divide people. Is to try and seek division in the world. And here God says the wisdom was made clear that he makes these two into one. And so I want us to think about some of the implications of this and saying, here's what's going on is this mystery. Okay. All right. One more thing. See, another parenthesis here as we're going along. Mystery. When you think of the word mystery, what do you think of? Maybe Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes. You probably think of a Scottish castle somewhere where this family that hasn't been together for a long time is gathered and there's the weird uncle who nobody ever sees and he shows up at the meeting and there's the long lost cousin who's got this thing and there's the matriarch of the family and then there's this curious butler who's off in the side and, and over the course of the weekend in the Scottish castle, somebody dies and everybody's trying to figure out who did it, right? And that's a mystery. And the mystery is nobody knows what's going on. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it doesn't mean that. It means, in fact, the exact opposite. The mystery is something that nobody knew before, but now everybody knows. And so he's saying, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation. Paul understood it because God showed it to him. But the mystery is something that was hidden before, but now is revealed. It's a, and so we kind of have to flip our language here. Mystery isn't like, oh, I don't know what's going on. He isn't saying, oh, I've been given this mystery and it's up to you to figure it out. He's saying, here's this mystery and it's been revealed. And so what Paul is talking about is the importance of unity. And again, here he's saying, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known as these two groups were brought together. And so he talks the importance of unity. That somehow these two groups are brought together, that the barrier has been destroyed. And that when the church lives out unity... That somehow that's a proclamation to the powers. It's not that we're preaching to spiritual forces. But when we live in unity together, it's a demonstration of God's power and wisdom to the powers. So what does that look like? There are many different ways we can think about that to say, what does it look like when we live in unity? Because sometimes we just think, oh, we're supposed to be together. We're supposed to love one another. But what we don't realize is that that's living out this drama God has invited us into. That when we live out unity in the church, it proclaims something to the powers. So I want to think about that in two areas that maybe the church, we as a church can think about that. First is politics. And we spent part of a series last fall talking about it. But I want to bring up just one. And this was a recent poll that I saw um, from the UVA Center for Politics. And I was reading this and I was astounded. And so... They asked both Democrats and Republicans to answer a couple questions. 
And one of the questions, or one of the ways they were, the things they were asked to respond to was this statement. The situation in America is such that I would favor red or blue states seceding from the union to form their own separate country. The situation in America is such that I would favor red or blue states seceding from the union to form their own separate country. In other words, they said, okay, do you think the country is so bad that some people just need to secede and start their own country? Nearly 50% of the people had either strongly or partly agree with that. Gets worse. Next one. The question asked was, I believe that people who support the opposing party have become a clear and present danger to the American way of life. Let's say that again. So people said, okay, how do you, do you, you know, strongly agree, somewhat agree, disagree, strongly disagree? I believe that people who support the opposing party have become a clear and present danger to the American way of life. Anybody want to take a guess what the percentage was for those who at least either somewhat or strongly agree with that? What? 75. 75. So three out of four people believe that the opposing party, if they're a Democrat, they believe the Republicans are a clear and present danger. And those are pretty strong words. They're not like, oh, we don't like them. You know, we, they've got some different ideas. Or 75% of Republicans, and it's almost split. It's not that it's just Democrats think that about Republicans or just Republicans. 75% think that the opposing party is a clear and present danger to the American way of life. Not just like they got some bad ideas and I disagree with their policies. Not just, well, you know, I, I wish they would frame that a little bit differently. A clear and present danger to the American way of life. Now, if you start to think that about another person or someone who's a part of another party, do you start to think pleasant thoughts about them? I mean, does that, does that well up feelings of love and goodwill towards the other person? If you are a Republican and you're thinking the Democrats are a clear and present danger to the American way of life, and I just love them. <laughs> or if you're a Democrat and you're thinking the Republicans are a clear and present danger to the American way of life, and I just want to have them over for dinner and see what we can talk about. No, what do you do? You start to divide and you start to demonize and you start to put those things down and the powers win. Because it starts to, and in fact, as I've been reading some of these studies, and it's just fascinating, I'm interested to learn about what's going on in the United States, and particularly in our country, is that oftentimes what we realize when people actually begin to have conversations with people from the other party, that they're oftentimes not as far apart as they think. That what they do, what people tend to do is we take the most extreme view of another group and put that on everyone in the group. So if we were to put it in, in sports. Now, some of you may know some sports fans where, like, okay, we're in Michigan. So U of M, MSU fans, right? And there are some U of M fans who like, you know, everything is blue and made. They've got the colors on everything and they've got their personalized license plate and they wear the skins and they're just all in on it. And you might think that every University of Michigan fan is like that, that they just, they can't see anything and they just think it's the greatest team in the world or if you're an MSU but you realize there are a lot of people who are fans who 
like they don't know who the coach is. They don't know, maybe not even be able to name the quarterback or whatever. They just like to watch the game and they enjoy it. And it's true the same in politics where sometimes we want to paint the picture and say that every Republican is like this person who is way out on the far fringes or every Democrat is like this person way out on the fringes. So what does this have to do with church? My guess is, and I'm fairly said, I you know, guess odds that there are probably some Republicans and some Democrats sitting here. And some of you may be thinking, I can't believe that. <laughs> How could, and see, that's where we're, that's that kind of language. How could, and so what can the church do? The church can demonstrate to the powers and also to the world that it's possible that we can sit together and we can worship together because what binds us together, what holds us together, what makes us one is not a political party or as I've so often heard said, is not a donkey, is not an elephant, but is a lamb. That's what binds us together. And so when we sit together, when we're able to hear one another, when we're maybe able to get together and to say to someone who is a member of the congregation, we realize that they're from an opposing party, we can sit together and say, tell me more about why you believe the way you believe. Help me understand your perspectives on this. And what we might be amazed is, Oh, we agree actually on a lot of different things. Sometimes we agree on the same ideas and we just have a different principle on how we might approach those. And sometimes the difference isn't the idea, but how it's brought about. And so when we are able to do that in church, when we're able to allow that dividing wall of hostility to come down, we're able to sit together and to talk together, we demonstrate to the powers that we're not going to allow that to divide us. We're not going to split because if we go back to that, the situation in America is such that I would favor red and blue states seceding from the union. Imagine if we said that in church. If we said, I think we just need to split the church. Republicans are going to meet at nine o'clock on Sunday morning and the Democrats are going to meet at six o'clock on Sunday night. Or maybe you just need to go down the street and form your own congregation. But instead, we choose to live together and say, this is who Jesus has called us to be, that he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And what binds us together is Jesus Christ. And so we have conversations. We try and understand. And it doesn't mean at the end of the day we can't disagree on things. And I imagine we will disagree on things because we come at it from a different perspective. So that's one area. Second area, I was listening to a pastor and he he calls himself on online is um, his his handle or his, his website is the autism pastor, and he uh, is a pastor who discovered that he was on the autism spectrum disorder. He was in his thirties before he realized this, but he's written some recent books on disabilities in the church. And as he was talking, he made an interesting point. He said that people with disabilities are the largest minority in the world. And I didn't get a chance to track down where he gets it to. But he said that people with disabilities are the largest minorities in the world. Nearly 20% of the world experiences some sort of disability. And again, disability or is disabled is it covers a very wide spectrum. But then we begin to ask ourselves, and as, as he was in this interview with somebody, is how do we adjust the way we do things in church? You know, are our churches places where we truly have a unity, where people with all of all different abilities can truly be together. 
in what ways can we do that? And as he, as he was talking, I was thinking about the ways that we do that. Do we, and I think we do, we have people with differing abilities and we welcome, but are there other ways that we create barriers where we fail to live that unity? And I'm not suggesting some of you guys out there think I'm going to tell you you need a project done, but this isn't my point. I want you to look at the platform we have here and think about something. If someone were in a wheelchair and wanted to participate in our worship team, it'd be quite a bit of work to get them up there, wouldn't it? Well, right. I mean, that's my, my point. But, but, you know, but, but there are all kinds of, I mean, that's just one example. And like I said, I'm not saying let's build a ramp or, but the, the thing is we often, those of us who don't have, well, we all have some, anyways, that sometimes it's easy to look beyond people because they're different and they have different abilities. And so we sometimes unintentionally exclude. We form and we set things. And so this pastor was talking about music. Now, some of you, I know, like your music loud. Some of you wish it weren't so loud. But some of you, for some people, the loud music is very difficult because, particularly for people like on the autism spectrum disorder, loud noises can be very disturbing. So what can also be bothersome is not knowing what's going on. I mean, I get up every Sunday morning and I've looked at the order of worship and I know everything that's going on. Some people, they said again, this pastor was speaking from his experience as someone with, on the autism spectrum disorder, of saying he, he kind of needs to know what's going on next. And he doesn't do well with surprises and things. And so it's beginning to think as a church, how can we pay attention to people who are differently able? How can we begin to do that? Because too often in the church, Many people who are disabled simply don't go to church because it's too hard. There are too many barriers, whether they're physical or emotional or mental barriers. And so they choose not to go. And so how are we demonstrating unity that the church is one when we've got a place that doesn't fully welcome everyone? And if I sound like I don't really know what I'm talking about, because I don't, this is just something that's kind of in some ways new to me. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, I've thought about it a little bit in the past as I've, in different congregations, dealing with people, but begin to think more widely of saying, do we really do a good job of that? And again, it's not a criticism of the church. This isn't to say, oh, we're doing a terrible job for Lynn Covenant Church. That's not my point. But it's an invitation for us to always to be better and to live into this. And, and we do, we have folks with different abilities and, and some disabilities, and we do a great job of welcoming them. Could we be even better and do that? And I think we can. And so to think about that and to say, what way do, do we reflect that diversity? Final kind of way we might think about that is that Paul and his life as a role model. So if we're being invited to live into a drama one of the things that Paul does here is he tells his story. And remember, where was Paul again when he's telling this story? He's in jail. Is he at the time, I mean, is he sitting next to the governor with his arm around him, whispering in his ear, telling him things to do? Has he got a big platform in Rome where thousands are gathering around to hear him preach? No, he's in jail, writing a letter to a little tiny church that's in the outcast. And part of what Paul is demonstrating with his life in this little parenthesis, this interruption, is that our present does not equal reality. 
that the triumph of the cross of Jesus is in our weakness. And so it's maybe an invitation from Paul to question, are we too caught up in questing after power? Do we think that we need to have a big platform? And this was, it's been a big thing for a few years now on the internet is this encouragement for people like, oh, if you want to want to change the world, you need to have a platform. And they're not talking a physical platform. Like You need to have 100,000 followers on Twitter and you need to have an Instagram account and you better do, be doing some TikTok too and you better do all these different things and stuff because you need to build a platform to get your message out. And maybe the better way is you, if you can sidle up next to the governor or to the president or to some people in the, the court system and stuff and be getting the positions of power because when we get in the positions of power, then we can have all kinds of influence and we can make a difference for Jesus. We don't have time to trace the history, but history says that doesn't go so well for the church. That when the church tries to seek positions of political power, inevitably the power corrupts the church rather than the church influencing the power. And so, or it might be a demonstration to us, here is Paul who changed the known world while sitting in jail. He wasn't in a position of power. The power isn't necessary to do it because the only power isn't political power, but it's what? The power of God, because he says what? Got to get to the right chapter here. He says, um, where he talks about the power. His intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And where he's talked about this and about the power that is available to him. He says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's graces. Verse 7. Given me through the working of his power. Which is language. Go back a couple chapters in Ephesians. The working of his power is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, God's power doesn't look like the way of the world's power. And so maybe it's a question for us as individuals, as a church, as a big church here in the United States is, are we too caught up in trying to get ourselves into positions of power so that we can have influence instead of depending on the power of God, which is the true power? Because when we try and seek the political positions, the entertainment positions, all those other worldly positions of power, what we end up doing is failing. And what Paul is saying to us here is we don't need those things. He says, you can have immense power. Paul is saying, God used me and through his power while I was sitting in jail, while I was under Roman arrest, while it looked like everything had been defeated. God used me to preach to the Jews and the Gentiles to demonstrate the power of God. So I think it's an invitation for us, church, to remember which power are we looking for? Are we looking for the power that the world offers and gives or are we looking to the power of God? the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Are we looking to that power, which is the true power that enables us to share this good news? Because ultimately that's what this story is reminding us of, that it's God's power that's at work. It's God's power that brings us together. It's God's power that unites and it's God's power that preaches the gospel as we allow ourselves to be used. So may we be used by God in his power to preach the good news of Jesus. May we be used by his power to demonstrate to the principalities and the powers 
that we are a united people, that God has torn down every barrier. May we be the ones who live out this mystery. Amen.